Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number six in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday, March the 13th. First, I'll be talking to Tiffany Bover, Global Customer Growth and Innovation Evangelist at Salesforce. And then I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Grunin about creating citizens' assemblies. But now, let's talk to Tiffany Bova. Tiffany, as Global Customer Growth and Innovation Evangelist at Salesforce, what are the right choices that companies can make to promote growth in their businesses? Well, while that sounds like a really simple question, (laughs) there's so much to unpack behind it. The first thing I always like to say is it depends. Um, And and I know that's kind of a cop-out, but what I learned through preparing to write the book Growth IQ as well as, you know, while I was in the middle of it, was that the one thing about growth is it's never one thing. And starting with the context that a business is in, so what industry, what region, what sector, you know, whether other things are going on around them and within their own business, you kind of need to know that first before you can start to say, oh, here's what I think you should do. So context is everything. Context is where to start, right? If you don't know that, you might be making a decision to try to replicate what your competition is doing, which that's one of the things that people tend to do uh, often. But you have to remember you're not your competition. You know, you don't have their customers. You don't have their brand. You don't have even potentially the same exact product that they have. It might be close. And so if you just go for replicating what someone else is doing, that's their context, right? That's their culture and their capabilities, not yours. So that's always super dangerous. Okay. So you really have to know your business first, everything. You have to know, yeah, you have to know your business. You have to know your employees and their capabilities. You have to know your customers. You have to know your ability to absorb change internally. You know, you can't throw a bunch of of ideas out to your employees and expect them to just respond accordingly and everything to be executed perfectly. Uh, There's a lot that goes behind those things that need to be done. So, you know, context is really not just a, you know, a one thing either, right? It, it, it includes all of those other things. You can't just make that assessment. You, you're going to have to make choices. What are the 
positive choices you can make and what are the negative choices you can make? Well, you know, first I'd say is um, making a choice if you even want to grow. And I know that sounds like a really crazy question, but sometimes there are companies that are lifestyle companies and they're very happy with the business that they have. Uh, You know, it, it could be, look, you know, I'm comfortable my employees are happy. I pay my bills. I grow slightly. You know, the kids are in college, whatever it might be. And I'm okay with this kind of growth rate. You have other businesses that are like, look, I, I think I should be growing faster, but I don't want to, you know, overextend myself. And then you have others that are like, I want to put my foot on the gas and I want to grow. I want to grow double digits year over year. I want to double my business in three years and double it again in three more years. And so that's a very different uh, starting point. So I, I'd have to say that you first have to first choice you have to make is do you want to grow, <laughs> and then what does growth mean to you? You know, two percent, five percent, ten percent, forty percent. What does it mean? So start there. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So you actually have to actually spell out how much you want to grow by. Yeah, because, you know, you could go to everybody and I I do this often, you know, I give keynotes around the world and I'll ask people in the audience, how many of you want to grow your business? Everyone raises their hands. And then I say, how many, how many of you want to double your business in the next 12 months? You know, not everyone's hands are up. How many of you want to grow at 50%, 25%? And you'll see that while everyone wanted to grow, not everyone wants to grow at the same pace. So that's what I mean by first making a decision if you want to grow. And then it goes back to that context. What can you handle as a business when it comes to growth? So you really have to understand exactly where you're coming from as a business. Yeah. And I know that sounds super obvious. Yet when I will dig into that with customers uh, or businesses or people I meet, you know, when I, when I'm out and about and I ask that question, if I were to ask five people from the executive team, or the leadership team of a business and ask them all, how much do you want to grow this year, next year, and the following year? Would they all answer exactly the same way? And they would, would. they? And they would. Probably not, right? Right. And, and then if you said, who are your top three competitors? Would they all answer the same way? If you said, do you think your culture can handle uh, a, you know, change and, and innovation at a rapid pace, would they all answer the same? So until everyone has a very uh, common starting ground, which is not easy to do, but you at least in the leadership team need to have a common understanding, then that way it can start to get communicated consistently over time. So everyone understands what and why you're doing the things you're doing. 
And then you can start to uh, work on what is the plan and what are the choices we need to make from here. That presupposes a fair degree of self-awareness by business people. And that is a big call, isn't it? It is a big call. It is a big call. And and there was an amazing research study done by Bain, which was on one of the very first few pages of my book. And I did it very intentionally. And and I'll uh, summarize it uh, quickly. But, you know, it was really that there was the survey across, you know, global uh, executives, all different sectors and sizes. And and the net of it was that it was like 87 percent of leaders and 95 percent of leaders in businesses larger than five billion felt that internal inertia, not external forces, were what kept them from growing and growing profitably. So. It was not about what was going on with the competition or any black swan events like tariffs or tariffs or elections or, you know, weather or things like that that we can't control. I'm talking about all the things you can control that in this survey, it really showed that internal inertia, all these things we've been talking about, not really having alignment at the executive level, which means your people don't know what they're doing. Yet everyone's going, we have to grow more, grow faster. And everyone goes, I don't even know what that means. Does that mean I work another hour? Does it mean I find, get recruit three more customers? Does it mean I lose five less customers? Like, what do, does that mean? Well, that means that you have to do a fair bit of homework first before you embark on any growth strategy. So I'd say in a perfect world. But herein lies the rub. One, if you are listening, you know, and you have a, a, a business which is fortunate enough to be growing today, you're almost less likely to take that time to step back from the business and look across and answer some of these questions we've been talking about. If you're already starting to notice that you're starting, growth is starting to slow down, you may already be too late in course correcting the trajectory that you're on right now, and you're going to have to really get aggressive in course correcting. If you've already found yourself in a growth stall, the decisions you made 18 or 24 months ago are what has led you to this place. So, you know, one of the most successful, you know, depends how you rate success, but, you know, Jeff Bezos from Amazon, he basically says, well, we have a good quarter. It's not because we did something well this quarter. It's because of decisions we made two or three years ago. So if you're heads down in the business every day, managing the business because you're growing and things are going well, and you're not taking time to be aware of what's around the corner, you will find yourself in a growth stall at some point, And then it may be too difficult and too hard for you to crawl out of. So what is growth IQ and how does a company develop theirs? Well, I, you know, I think the, the whole purpose behind coming up with Growth IQ is I wanted it to be very clear that growth to me is a thinking game. Like everything we've just talked about is sort of what's the context? Do you even want to grow? What does that mean? Are your leaders aligned? Are your people aligned? You know, knowing all that, that's very thinking oriented. It isn't necessarily about having the best products uh, or the best strategy or being you know best at execution. It's about did we even come up with the right plan to to begin with? So for me, it was a way to deconstruct growth 
across 30 stories of 30 companies that have been successful at growing and 10, 20 companies that have been successful, 10 companies that have found themselves in challenging positions and giving examples of what they did, how they did it, what the context was, but more importantly, um, identifying 10 very distinct growth paths that companies chose uh, in order to go after growth. How would you summarize Growth IQ? I'd say it's a thinking game. It, it is a, a framework that includes the context of the market, 10 growth paths, the combination of the growth paths you choose, and last but not least, the sequence and order in which you do things has an incredible impact in the success that you will have with those decisions that you've made. And so in a nutshell, that, that's what it's all about. Well, Tiffany Bover, I'm sure businesses will be listening with great interest and thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you for having me. And now let's talk to economist Nicholas Gruen. Nicholas Gruen, there was a lot of controversy about Trump's operatives releasing a video of Nancy Pelosi tearing up his speech spliced and they spliced that interweaving with Trump's comments praising heroes like aged soldiers and that got a lot of controversy. What was your view about that? Yeah, well, essentially what it was, they had taken footage of Nancy Pelosi perhaps injudiciously tearing up Trump's speech, his State of the Unionist speech. Nancy Pelosi stands behind the president. Uh, the president, she went, she moved to shake his hand. And so he handed her the speech as if she was his secretary. And at the end of his speech, she tore it up uh, in full view of everyone. So what happened was the Trump campaign got hold of this video of Nancy Pelosi tearing up Trump's speech and then made it look as if she was tearing up these words that uh, Donald Trump was speaking as he was praising all these wonderful people, uh, veterans and so on. And the controversy is the Democrats said that Facebook should not run that ad because it was clearly misleading. And Facebook said, oh, no, it's all true footage. And of course, they can make money out of it. So they were happy to run it. Now, they're in a difficult position because they don't want to offend people. So it's very easy for them to say, oh, well, we'll run anything, including the lies that the Democrats might, might want to broadcast. Uh, and that's obviously a pretty bad situation for media to be in, where it's encouraging a race to the bottom. What I suggested on my blog is that a way to try and deal with this that would distance its, which would enable Facebook to distance itself from the difficulties that it's in, is to use something like a citizen's jury. Now, a citizen's jury would be chosen like a jury is uh, by some process of selection from the community to try and get a representative sample of the community. And then we could try to delegate the process of both designing policy and supervising its implementation to ordinary people from the community rather than bureaucrats who would be employed by Facebook and everyone would continue complaining about what Facebook's values were Facebook could stand back and say, well, they're not our values. We're trying to represent, we're, we're trying to reflect community values. Well, indeed, uh, these citizens' assemblies could actually also assist issues like the honours system. 
which is fairly controversial at the moment, public bodies and decision-making by governments. Yeah, exactly. So I think there is this... Uh, I've been on about this for a long time, as you know, Leon, and I think that the mechanisms by which we deliver independence are all in somewhere from crisis to uh, great difficulty. Uh, I think the mechanisms by which we deliver independence uh, and high quality in media, in genuine crisis, in the commercial media, the objective is to make money. And that means uh, everyone's out there with link bait, basically just trying to stir up whatever they can in their readership uh, or their viewership. And uh, so, so our whole democracy. This is um, so. That's how the media work. Then, uh, if you if you ask yourself questions like, how should the government handle the outrage about giving? an Order of Australia, uh, a, a member of the Order of Australia to Bettina Arndt, for instance, who's come out and described the jury's decision in Cardinal Pell's case as mob rule. Um, now, that's a highly politicised matter. The culture wars have come to the honours, and it seems to me the only way that we can deal with this and have the confidence of the community is actually to involve ordinary people in that in that process. And uh, if they if those ordinary people can come to a fairly strong consensus, which I think they probably could, I think the community would have a lot more faith in in the process. Well, you'd need a structure to actually set them issues to assess. And the other issue is uh, how often should they be turned over? Uh, Athens democracy operated much more by this mechanism of random selection than by election. They really only elected their generals, um, although those generals had some quite important um, political functions. But they, so they ran, the equivalent of the local council in Athens uh, was a thing called the Boule, and that had 500 people in it, and they were appointed at random, and they were turned over every year, and you could, never, you could only be a member of the Boule twice in your life. Uh, the Boulay was ran the local the sort of things that a local council would do, and it also prepared the agenda for the assembly, which was the main deliberative body. Uh, so, you, you, generally speaking, you want to turn these thi- you want to turn these things over reasonably regularly. You're trying to prevent factions developing. On the other hand, I think it might make some sense to give people you're, you're paying people for their service. You might give them two or three years, a term of two or three years, and then turn them over one third at a time so that at any point in time there are some kind of elders, some people who are halfway through their term, and some newcomers. Uh, I think that's quite a good way of trying to build a culture within such an organisation that can uh, carry things forward through, uh, that can develop ways of operating that can be carried through time. I think the critical issue, though, is how much autonomy and independence would these bodies have? I think it's quite, it's quite practicable for government to cede authority to these bodies in these, in these very value-laden areas of something like Australian Honours. Um, if they don't want to do that, that's fine. They can start by 
uh, effectively handing over the running to it with some kind of ministerial oversight, some kind of ministerial veto. Uh, I wouldn't encourage that, but I think uh, fairly quickly governments would, a bit like the Reserve, g giving independence to the Reserve Bank, fairly quickly it becomes clear that except in very specific situations, this is actually in the interests of the politicians because otherwise they just get drawn into one controversy after another. So so I think it's a matter of try and get these things running, try and expand their operation where it's easiest to do so, give them more autonomy. And then I would like to see the this kind of mechanism expand quite a lot further. In the in a province of Belgium, for instance, there is a standing citizens council and that's effectively part of their parliamentary structure. It performs a role a little like the Athenian boule. It serves up agenda items to the rest of the legislature, and it has the power to commission other citizen juries to look at specific subjects. I think that would be an excellent addition to our democracy, and I think it would make it harder for our politicians to go off on some of the extraordinary frolics of their own that we've seen in the not-too-distant past. Given that there are these citizens' assemblies in the UK, which are modelled on the ancient Athenians' assemblies, yep. Yep. Uh, there's plenty of lessons to be learned, aren't there? Uh, absolutely. Well, there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of experimentation going on. There's a big citizens' council... Uh, a big citizens' assembly on climate change in the UK. That's government-sponsored. Uh, in France, there's been a lot of something very similar, sponsored again by Macron, the president. I would, uh, if any of your listeners want to uh, explore this with me further, uh, I would like to see if we could get funding quite apart from the government to do this in Australia, if we can get private funding to run a citizens' assembly... Then we can, um, uh, then we can, uh, you know, we could send a, uh, we could send a delegation to, uh, to Glasgow to COP25, the climate summit in November. Uh, so there are plenty of things that we could, uh, there are plenty of ways that we can, uh, we can take this. Well, it'll be fascinating to watch. And Nicholas Gruen, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much. So what's happening in the news? Well, Australia's economy will record its first recession since 1991, as a hit from China's virus-induced slowdown is amplified by slumping confidence and domestic disruptions from the outbreak intensifying down under, according to Bloomberg Economics' James McIntyre. And S&P Global Ratings says Australia's freightings are not under immediate threat, despite saying a recession was likely in June. Gross domestic product will fall 0. 4 percentage points in the first three months of the year and 0.3 percentage points in the second quarter, ending the 28-and-a-half-year stretch of economic growth, McIntyre said in a report on Monday. Isolations and domestic disruptions to contain the spread of the virus will have a mounting economic impact, which is likely to result in a further GDP contraction in the second quarter and potentially beyond, McIntyre said. Stimulus, both fiscal and monetary, will help to reduce the damage, but is unlikely to be enough to offset the impacks. GDP will expand by just 0.4% in 2020, he forecasts, some 1.5 percentage points below his pre-coronavirus estimate. 
McIntyre predicts large budget deficits ahead as the automatic stabilises, increased welfare payments and reduced tax collection begin to take hold. That's on top of the fiscal stimulus needed to boost demand and confidence. And the ASX was sent crashing below 6,000 with losses of more than 140 billion in one day, the lowest level since October 2008. And the Japanese yen jumped to the strongest level since 2016 at the start of another roller coaster week, but this time with an oil price war to add to the distress. Russia's refusal to meet OPEC's push for production cuts unleashed a 10% fall in the price of crude and threatens to revive the energy wars as the coronavirus global spread inflicts mounting damage on the commodity and equity markets. It's the biggest fall in the oil price since the GFC. Crude oil prices crashed and US equity futures plunged at the open on Monday in Asia while the yen and sovereign bonds jumped as a price war for crude threatened an already fragile global economy hit by increasing coronavirus worries. Brent opened 20% lower, S&P 500 futures were down well over 3%. Equities in the Middle East plunged on Sunday as Saudi Arabia slashed the price of its crude after producers failed to agree on supply cuts. Global markets had another rocky week with sentiment battered as the virus continues to spread and cause more disruption to economies. The oil price war comes as US stocks fell back into a correction and Treasury yields slumped to an all-time low. Meanwhile, expectations are growing for a recession in some major economies. Pacific investment management company Joachim Fels said the US and Europe face the distinct possibility of a technical recession in the first half of this year as the virus hammers demand and drives money into safe haven assets. The collapse in oil prices will put extra pressure on the economies of all the major oil companies and producers. The price is rapidly sinking below the break-even points for all the big oil producing nations, while also unsettling and destabilising the high-yield or junk bond market in the US. Energy companies account for more than 10% of that market. If prices remain at or below the current levels for any length of time, there's potential for a wave of bankruptcy in the US energy sector, while economic woes and social unrest in countries like Iran, Iraq, Venezuela and Angola will intensify. And a coronavirus-driven Australian slowdown may trigger unconventional monetary policy as, as soon as the middle of the year, according to market participants reading for QE. The Reserve Bank of Australia may kickstart a bond buying program in a few months to buoy a battered economy, said AMP Capital Investors. Meanwhile, Capstream Lack Capital, BlackRock and Nico Asset Management are among funds that have been purchasing bonds in anticipation of further interest rate cuts and the arrival of quantitative easing. And coronavirus is set to test the nascent pandemic bond market as the virus triggers the insurance mechanism resulted in investors losing their principal investments, says international ratings agency DBRS Morningstar. Marcos Alvarez, a UK-based analyst with DBRS Morningstar, said US 320 million, that's 484 million Aussie, was tied up in pandemic bonds globally, and it was likely that much of this would be lost as the disease spreads. He said this would test the popularity of the investment vehicle, which has only been around since 2017 and has never yet been tested. Pandemic bonds are a type of catastrophe bond or insurance-linked security, an investment vehicle issued by insurance companies, financial institutions and governments to protect against the cost of a sudden pandemic outbreak. Investors receive higher-than-average coupon in compensation for the risk that they will lose some or all of their principal in the case of a pandemic. While most catastrophe bonds cover natural disasters such as hurricanes, cyclones and earthquakes and are issued by insurers and reinsurers, the only issuer of pandemic catastrophe bonds is the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, part of the World Bank. 
The market was launched in 2017 following the Ebola outbreak in West Africa in 2014 as a way of transferring some of the cost of international aid from, from the coffers of the World Bank onto capital markets. The high coupon securities immediately proved popular with investors and the $370 million issuance in 2017 was 200% oversubscribed. Mr Alvaro said it was now highly likely that the catastrophe bonds would be triggered for the first time. And Australian businesses are turning more pessimistic on fallout from the coronavirus, with sentiment gauges falling and suggesting further deterioration ahead. The National Australia Bank gauge of business sentiment slid to minus four in February from minus one, the weakest reading since July 2013, where businesses were battling heightened domestic political uncertainty and the winding down of the mining investment boom. The conditions index, which measures hiring, sales and profits, dropped to zero from a downwardly revised two. And the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index fell 4.2% last week. This was the third consecutive fall for a cumulative decline of more than 8%, taking the index to a low last seen in May 2014. Current economic conditions fell 8%, adding to the massive 16.6% decline in the previous reading. And the Westpac Melbourne Institute Index of Consumer Sentiment fell 3.8% to 91.9% in March from 95.5% in February. The worsening coronavirus outbreak and associated rout in financial markets have had a major impact on sentiment this month. The index has hit a five-year low. In fact, it's the second lowest level of the index since the global financial crisis when the index bottomed out at 79, with an average read of 86.8 over the period. And Scott Morrison has urged big business to display patriotism as Australia grapples with the coronavirus crisis, which he warns could hit the economy harder than the global financial crisis. Addressing a business audience in the run-up to this week's stimulus package, Morrison said large companies have a huge role to play, telling them to hang on to staff and support workers, including casuals, with paid leave when they need time off because of the virus. They should also pay small business suppliers ahead of time in coming months. And the Morrison government's coronavirus rescue operation means PM's promised budget surplus is now very unlikely, and the government will break its self-imposed $600 billion debt ceiling. The stimulus package, which is tipped to cost between $5 billion and $10 billion, contains tax relief, wage subsidies and cash payments to help business and cash bonuses for welfare recipients to stimulate consumption. This is in addition to the Morrison government dedicating almost $2 billion more for health services, as well as a $30 million information campaign to try to stem panic. And Commonwealth Bank said it was ready to cut fees and defer payments for small business borrowers struggling with cash flow amid the coronavirus outbreak ahead of a meeting between bank CEOs and Treasurer Josh Frydenberg on Wednesday in Sydney. CBA said that if the coronavirus keeps customers away and small businesses start to struggle, it's willing to push back repayments on loan and overdrafts for three months, waive fees for use of its payment terminals for three months, and will move more of its own suppliers onto immediate payment terms. And flight centre employees are being asked to drastically cut back their working hours to take unpaid leave as executives scramble to offset the devastating financial impact of COVID-19. In an internal email sent to the company's 10,000 employees, staff members were asked to reduce their workload by one day a week to alleviate the significant downturn caused by the outbreak. Staff can work a four-day week rather than five days with their salary reflective as this change, the email said. All staff have been offered the opportunity to reduce their full-time equivalent by one day a week or fortnight. In the email, the company conceded the impact of the deadly virus had been significant and said if employers heeded the appeal to cut back on hours, it would make a big difference. 
The travel agency's contingency plan was activated on Wednesday. All eligible employers have been asked to book and take a minimum of one week's annual leave before June 30, and optional unpaid leave is also available. The move comes as global air travel is increasingly grinding to a halt, forcing the travel industry to reckon with the mounting cost of cancelled flights, lost sales and substantial reduction in services. And like the rest of the tourism industry, the rapid spread of the virus has rattled flight and centre and led to a sustained collapse in bookings to China and the rest of Asia, including Hong Kong, Japan and South Korea. Last month, Qantas outlined its plans to ask staff to take paid leave owed to them and freeze recruitment as it slashed services in response to the COVID-19 crisis. And Air New Zealand has scrapped its earnings guidance for the full year 2020, citing the increased uncertainty surrounding the duration and scale of the coronavirus outbreak. The airline said it had taken numerous steps to mitigate the impact of the reduced demand, but now believed the financial impact was likely to be more significant than had previously been estimated. It added that the situation was evolving at such a rapid pace, the airline was currently not in a position to provide an earnings outlook to the market. Across the air network, Air New Zealand has reduced capacity by 10%. Asia capacity has been reduced by 36%. Tasman capacity is down 7%. Pacific Islands are down 6%. And its domestic network has been reduced by 4%, with 10 to 15% reduction set to take place in March and April. At the same time, the short-term outlook for passenger airlines like Qantas and Virgin Australia has been slashed to negative at Moody's Investors Services as analysts tally up the cost of the COVID-19 outbreak. Plus, the International Air Transport Association last week said the outbreak would raise up to US $113 billion, that's $171 billion Aussie, in revenue in the aviation sector this year. The agency cited pressures associated with the uncertain duration and spread of the coronavirus strain on airline profits to justify the decision. It does not forecast a recovery any sooner than the third quarter of 2020. And Qantas Chief Executive Alan Joyce increased Qantas's capacity cuts from 5% to 23%, delayed new routes, shelved the $150 million share buyback and abandoned its financial guidance due to the unfolding crisis. The capacity cuts will mean Qantas needs 2,000 fewer staff. Joyce will ask staff to take paid leave and then unpaid leave in a bid to avoid redundancy. To his credit, Joyce and Chairman Richard Goiter will make this request having announced they will take no salary for the last three months of the year. Senior executives and the rest of the board will take a 30% pay cut. And the worldwide spread of the novel coronavirus is leading to some curious side effects. Store shelves are being stripped bare from Singapore to Seattle. Supermarkets in the UK have started rationing items. In Hong Kong, a delivery man was reportedly robbed at knife points of hundreds of toilet paper rolls. Australia has seen brawls break out at supermarkets, prompting police to taser one man. And France effectively nationalised all production of face masks after people began depleting the supply. Panic buying has emerged as a reliable feature of the coronavirus epidemic as a fever or dry cough. Psychologists view control as a fundamental human need. With the disease that's highly infectious and can turn deadly, this epidemic violates a sense of control in fundamental ways. Unless policymakers can find a way to restore that feeling, this cycle of panic buying, hoarding and scarcity only stands to escalate. The panic buying is already threatening to do real damage. The US Surgeon General has pleaded with Americans to stop buying face masks to ensure that healthcare workers have them, while Japan has said it will introduce penalties for reselling masks. eBay banned new listings for health products after instances of price gouging became common, with packs of hand sanitizer that usually sell for $10 popping up for $400.
and the administrators of George Calambaris' restaurant empire as recommending the companies be liquidated, with some new food avenues set to open in their wake. Advisory investment firm Cordamentha says it has sold Jimmy Grants and Fitzroy and Hellenic Republic Brunswick and is finalising the sale of Hellenic Republic Brighton, Hellenic Republic Q and Jimmy Grants Emporium. It has negotiated a sale of assets to landlords for most of the company's other establishment, the Hellenic Hotel in Williamstown and Jimmy Grants in Ormond, Richmond and St Kilda. Its assets on site will be sold off in an online auction conducted by Hyman's. The main items of value are alcohol inventories with perishables already given to a food rescue charity. It wasn't feasible to collect the alcohol at Jimmy Grant's in Chatston. Post-liquidation, Cordamentha doesn't expect the group to have the $1.34 million it estimates it owes employees, including $368,336 in unpaid annual leave and $900,496 in termination entitlements. And another major Australian retail chain has collapsed with the receiver warning that more could follow as consumer confidence remains shaky. Almost 500 jobs were in limbo after Melbourne-based stationery chain Kiki K was placed into voluntary administration. The chain has 65 stores across Australia, Singapore, Hong Kong, London and New Zealand, as well as an online store. Administrator Cork Codis plans to keep stores open and sell the whole group. The chief executive said the company had been caught in a perfect storm of soft consumer demand, bushfires and coronavirus. At least six other retailers, including Bardo, have also gone under or been forced to close stores this year. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Brenda McKeegan from Australian Plant Proteins, which secured funding to commence the fit-out of a manufacturing facility of a pulse-based extract in Horsham, Victoria. And I'll be talking to IFM Chief Economist Alex Joyner about the outlook for the Australian economy. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBLZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. If you're wishing you all a terrific week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.